Hi everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors at HMCC of Jakarta, and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to us today. Uh, so let's get right into it. Today is Good Friday. This is the day that Christians around the whole world remember Jesus' suffering and death. But if we're honest with ourselves, in the day-to-day trenches of our lives, most of us probably think more about our suffering rather than Christ's suffering. The reality is that we face all kinds of suffering in our lives, in our families, in our schools and workplaces, and in the world around us. There is not an area in our lives that is not marked by some kind of suffering. And so what probably encompasses much of our thoughts in our everyday lives is not Christ's suffering, but our own suffering and the people and circumstances that surround it. So today, as we remember Jesus' suffering and death, we need to ask ourselves the so what question. We need to ask ourselves, does following Jesus make any difference in how I think about and respond to my own suffering? Or in other words, does Jesus' suffering and death have anything to do with my everyday suffering? And the answer of scripture is a resounding yes. So the one thing for today is follow Jesus in his suffering. Follow Jesus in his suffering. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 21 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 25. And just want to give a bit of context before jumping into today's passage. So this letter was written in the first century by the apostle Peter, and it was written to encourage and instruct Christians living in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and they were facing hostility, slander, and persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of such unjust suffering, Peter encourages them with the great salvation and hope that they have through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that should radically change how they live and especially how they respond to their suffering. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. From this passage, we're going to see two truths regarding who Jesus is, and and that will enable us to follow him in his suffering. So two, two truths regarding who Jesus is that enable us to follow him in his suffering. First is Jesus is our suffering example. We'll see that in verses 21 to 23. And then second is Jesus is our saving shepherd, verses 24 to 25. So first, Jesus is our suffering example. Here, we must come to terms with the fact that Christians are called to endure suffering for doing good. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about calling. What am I called to? What's my calling in life? And verse 21 starts off by saying this, For to this you have been called. So what is the this that we've been been called to? It's defined in the previous verses, in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. For this is a gracious thing, 
when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this, in verse 21, is enduring suffering for doing good. Just let that soak in for a moment. As Christians, God calls us to endure suffering for doing good. You know, I don't think that's what any of us would naturally want when we think about God's calling in our lives. We want to be called to health and wealth. We want to be called to comfort and popularity. But who among us wants to be called to endure suffering? When your love for family members is met with harshness, when your hard efforts at the workplace are met with condescension, when your vulnerability is met with slander and judgment, the natural inclination in all of us is to fight or flight. We either retaliate for turning evil for evil or we run away, burying ourselves in isolation or distraction. But neither of those responses is what God calls us to do. Rather, God calls us to stay and endure suffering for doing good. You know, this is not mature Christianity, but this is basic Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is no followership of Christ without a personal cross. There is no followership of Christ without enduring suffering for doing good. But when God calls us, it is always a purposeful call, which means that there is meaning in our suffering. The whole of verse 21 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So what's God's purpose for calling us to endure suffering for doing good? So that we would follow Christ in his suffering. So that we would share in Christ's suffering. Or in short, God's purpose for our suffering is so that we would become more like Christ. And part of the reason Jesus suffered for us was to leave us an example for how we ought to endure suffering for doing good. And that's an important distinction. We are not simply called to suffer, period. You know, there's actually nothing distinctly Christian about that because, because of the fall, because we all live in a broken and sinful world, every single person will suffer. There's nothing special about that. Rather, as Christians, we are called to endure suffering for doing good. We are called to follow the example of Christ in how he endured suffering for doing good. In other words, as Christians, we are called not simply to go through suffering, which we're all going to experience, but we are called to a certain standard for how we endure suffering for doing good. So next we'll see that Christ exemplified how to endure suffering for doing good. So how did he do it? Verses 22 to 23 say this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To revile means to criticize in an abusive and angrily insulting manner. The natural sinful response of being wrongly abused and insulted is to try to get even or to revile in revile in return. You know, if they hurt you, you'll find some way to hurt them back. 
And if you can't get even with them in the moment, you at least threaten them with getting even later. Just think about any time you've been wrongly abused or wrongly insulted, wrongly mocked, wrongly shamed. How did you respond? You know, I would wager to say that 100% of us wanted to retaliate in some way. It may have been through active retaliation with your words and actions or passive retaliation with your apathy and withdrawal. But there's something in all of us or sin in all of us that wants to return evil for evil. But Jesus committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Just consider the kind of unjust suffering that Jesus endured and his remarkable lack of retaliation. You know, I know this is a familiar narrative for many of us, but remember that this was not just a character in a story, but this occurred to a real person, Jesus Christ. So just begin to imagine the physical and emotional trauma that he experienced and think about how you might have responded in the midst of it. So Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest disciples. And when he's arrested, all of his closest disciples left him and fled. He's brought before the high priest and the religious leaders, and he's falsely accused by multiple false witnesses. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. When they finally asked if he is the Christ and Jesus affirms that he is, they all condemned him as deserving death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? You know, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples and the very writer of this letter, who had followed at a distance, ends up adamantly denying three times that he knows Jesus at all. And Jesus is right there to turn and stare at the face of his beloved disciple as he blatantly denies him. When Jesus is brought before the governor Pontius Pilate, and when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Even when Pilate declared Jesus innocent, innocent of the charges brought against him, he still gave in to the crowd and delivered Jesus over to be unjustly scourged and crucified. To be scourged was to have your hands tied to a post, only to be publicly whipped with multiple leather cords with sharp pieces of bone and metal embedded into those cords throughout. It was meant to inflict maximum pain and blood loss as each lash would rip out large pieces of your flesh and left skeletal muscles completely exposed on your back. And after this immense torture, Jesus is then brought to the governor's palace to be mocked and beaten some more by the Roman soldiers. They clothe him in a purple cloak They twist together a crown of thorns and press it down till blood begins to run down his face. They mockingly kneel down to him as king before they spit on him and strike him on the head only to drive down that crown of thorns deeper into his temples and forehead. 
Afterwards, they strip him and they lead him outside the city to be crucified. Jesus is forced to carry his own cross through the streets and up a hill only to die a horrific death on a cross. Having already endured such physical torture and emotional trauma, he collapses on the way. So a stranger carries his cross the rest of the way. And at the top of the hill, he's thrown on his back, exasperating his already open wounds on his back. And giant nails are driven through his hands and his feet into the cross. And after he's lifted up, he can no longer properly exhale with the entire weight of his body hanging by his wrists. So over the next few hours, every breath Jesus takes is excruciating as he's left there to hang and die a slow, agonizing death. And even as he's hanging on the cross, those who pass by, the religious leaders, and even those crucified with Jesus continue to revile him with more insults and mockery. What would you have done? How would you have responded? Yet having endured all this unjust suffering, what does Jesus say from the cross? He does not revile in return. He does not threaten. But he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, how in the world could Jesus endure suffering like that? Verse 23 says, It was because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the original language, the object himself is actually not there. It simply reads that Jesus continued entrusting to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself. He entrusted the wrongdoers. He entrusted his followers. He entrusted the entire situation to God who judges justly. Rather than trying Rather than trusting in his own abilities to retaliate, which Jesus, who committed no sin, could have justly done, Jesus, as our example, entrusted himself, every person that wronged him, the entire situation, to God the Father, knowing that he would judge justly and ultimately vindicate him. That means that how we endure suffering is not simply about what we do, but about what we believe or who or what we're trusting in. For example, you could stay silent in the midst of such unjust suffering only to therapeutically lash out at a pillow or vent to a friend or unleash your anger at some other unsuspecting person or thing. Or you could try to hold in your anger and try your best to suppress it by your sheer willpower. But none of that is entrusting yourself to the God who judges justly. That's entrusting yourself to yourself and all the ways you can come up with to make, somehow make yourself feel better. But there is no lasting peace in that. And surely by doing any of that, you cannot genuinely say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ultimately then, to endure suffering for doing good comes down to faith. Do we, what do we really believe about God? Do we believe that He's called us to endure suffering for doing good? Do we believe that He is forming us into the likeness of Christ as we follow in His steps of suffering? 
Do we believe that God will judge justly and ultimately vindicate us so we have no need to retaliate personally? If we truly believe those realities about God, His call, His purpose, and His character, it's only then that we can begin to endure suffering for doing good, following the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's life application number one. Entrust to God every aspect of your suffering. Entrust to God God, every aspect of your suffering. Let me just offer a few gauges to help us figure out whether we're doing that or not. First, are you lamenting to God? Are you turning to God, bringing your complaint, asking boldly for help, and choosing to trust Him in your prayers? Are you praying at all about your suffering? If not, it's hard to say that you're trusting God and following in Christ's steps as you endure suffering. If you want to learn more about lamenting, you can find a previous sermon called Learning to Lament on our, on our church website. So first, are you lamenting to God? Second, are you enduring suffering with fellow members of Christ's body? God's word says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here, the basic assumption is that fellow members know when we're suffering and when we're honored so that we can suffer or rejoice together. But most of the time, and all the more during this time of pandemic, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ simply will not know that you're suffering unless you resolve not to endure suffering in isolation and you resolve to share with them. You know, they w- we will not know that you're suffering unless you share it with us, your spiritual family. You know, none of us were meant to live the Christian life alone. We were meant to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So please, open yourself up to be ministered to by others in your local spiritual family. Share openly about what you're suffering so that we can help each other to entrust every aspect of our suffering to God. So first, Jesus is our suffering example. And now the second main point, Jesus is our saving shepherd. Jesus is our saving shepherd. Here we must understand and treasure the fact that Jesus suffered and died for the salvation of sinners. You know, if we're called to endure suffering for doing good, then what exactly was the good that Jesus did? You know, in one sense, his entire life was doing good. You know, he treated the marginalized with dignity. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He exposed hypocrisy in religious leaders. And he taught and lived perfectly in accordance to God's word. His whole life was doing good. But more specifically, what was the good purpose for his suffering and death? If the purpose for our suffering is to follow in his steps and to become more like him, then Jesus' death needed to mean something. It needed to accomplish something. Otherwise, he suffered and died a meaningless death. And there would be nothing praiseworthy and good about throwing our lives away to be killed for no reason. If that were the case, why in the world would we want to follow that kind of example? So if we're going to follow him, we need to know what was the good that was accomplished in his death. What did it mean? With that in mind, the beginning of verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what was the good purpose of Christ's suffering and death? In short, Jesus suffered and died for the salvation of sinners. 
Jesus suffered and died for the salvation of sinners. And here Paul highlights two aspects of our salvation, justification and sanctification. Justification is the gracious legal act of God in which he forgives sinners of their sins and declares them righteous in his sight by virtue of them being united to Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. We see this in the first clause. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In justification, by God's gracious provision, Jesus stands in our place as our substitute and makes a great exchange with us on that cross. God counts our sins as Christ's and he receives the penalty of sin that we deserved. And God counts Christ's righteousness as ours and we receive the benefit of righteousness that we don't deserve. So that's justification. And now sanctification is the gracious act of God in which he definitively or once for all and progressively or more and more makes holy those he has justified through applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them until they are conformed completely into the likeness of Christ. We see this in the second clause, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In sanctification, God's grace enlivens us and empowers us to more and more flee from sin and to more and more pursue greater devotion to God. Justification and sanctification are the double grace that we receive in salvation. Those two aspects of salvation are both graciously provided in salvation, in the salvation that Christ died to give those who believe in Him. We are both justified and sanctified in Him. So that's the big picture. The good purpose of Christ's suffering and death was to save sinners, justifying us by taking the penalty of our sins upon himself on the cross and sanctifying us by enabling us to more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to dive deeper into one aspect, justification, and what that means for us. And I I want us to soak this in and understand that this is not just some theological concept. This should radically change the way we understand our lives, what Christ has done for us, and now how we respond to suffering. So let's look more closely at the first clause in verse 21. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. One of the first things we need to come to grips with to truly treasure what this means for us is the fact that there is a day of judgment that all that awaits all of us. There is a day of judgment that awaits all of us. And on that day, if we are not forgiven our sin and declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ, who already took on that punishment on the cross, that is, if we are not justified by faith in Christ, then we will stand guilty before a holy God and we will face God's active judgment for our sin against Him in a place of eternal conscious torment called hell, which is eternal death. You know, many of us choose only to reflect on how God is love and then we ignore how God is also our righteous judge. It's true, God is love, but we must not ignore how God is also our righteous judge. In fact, we won't even begin to understand God's love unless we first understand that His righteous judgment is coming. If we think that God is too loving to judge people for their sins, 
then we actually have a less loving God and a less personal God than we realize. Because it costs that kind of God nothing to love us. It costs Him nothing to embrace sinners like us. But when Jesus came and began saying to people, your sins are forgiven, He wasn't just saying it. He was fully aware of what it will cost Him to give us that forgiveness. When Jesus hung on that cross, He was being completely crushed, body and soul, marred beyond human resemblance, so that we would never experience that for our sin. We deserve that He took that on. So when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing hell itself on our behalf. You know, nobody likes to be rejected. If an acquaintance rejects you, it hurts. If a friend rejects you, that hurts even more. But if a spouse rejects you, that's one of the most painful experiences you could ever go through. The longer and more intimate the relationship with someone, the greater the suffering of rejection. From eternity past, the son enjoyed the most intimate relationship with the father. It was infinitely greater than even the longest, most intimate human relationship. So when Jesus was cut off from God as he hung on that cross in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin, it was the most excruciating suffering that we cannot even begin to imagine. And yet he did it voluntarily for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. That's what it meant when verse 21 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That's what it cost Christ for us to be forgiven and declared righteous before God, to be justified by faith in Him. It cost Him everything. Everything. And it's only when we come to grips with God's judgment of sin that we can begin to realize how costly, personal, overwhelming is the love of God for us. Without God's judgment of sin, the love of God is simply some conceptual, impersonal, unmoving sentiment. It's nice to think about, doesn't change me. Doesn't move me. Has no effect on my life. When we come to grips with God's judgment of sin, we begin to realize what Jesus saved us from. He did not save us from temporary suffering in this life, but first and foremost, He saved us from eternal suffering in the life to come. In the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest Christian confessions that we have from the second century, there's a line that's often misunderstood. After the Creed states that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, it says, He descended into hell. The Heidelberg Catechism from the 16th century asks the question, why is there added, he descended into hell? And then it gives this answer, that in my severest tribulations, I may be assured that Christ my Lord has redeemed me from hellish anxieties and torment by the unspeakable anguish, pains, and terrors which he suffered in his soul both on the cross and before. In short, when we dwell on the fact that Christ suffered hellish anxieties and torment on the cross and before, 
we may be assured that even in our severest tribulations or sufferings, we will never, never experience the hell that we deserve because Christ has already borne it on our behalf on the cross. The cross and the hellish suffering that Christ bore on our behalf puts all other temporary suffering in proper perspective. Because we are justified by faith in Christ, because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, we will never actually get what we deserve for our sins. When we realize that that's how much God loves us, that's the kind of love that begins to change us. It begins to change how we see our suffering. It begins to change how we understand who God is. It begins to change how we respond in our everyday suffering. Next, we'll see that Christ has indeed saved or healed us from our sin if we have turned or returned to Christ as our shepherd and overseer. The rest of verse 24 and verse 25 says this, By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you have been healed is another summary of the salvation that Christ accomplished for sinners in his suffering and death on our behalf. By virtue of the suffering and death of Christ, those who believe in him are healed. Given the context that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, this means that we've been spiritually healed. We were once sick with cancerous sin, with certain death looming over us, but Christ suffered and died in our place so that we may be healed of the penalty and power of sin in our lives. But how do we know if this is true of us? How do we know if we've been truly saved or healed of our sin? Notice that it does not say that we know that we are saved or healed because we stop sinning. No, Though we are saved from the penalty and power of sin, the presence of sin still remains in us on this side of heaven. But yes, those who are justified by God are also sanctified by Him. So God empowers us to die to sin and live to righteousness more and more. So there will be progress, but sin will still be present in our lives until we see God face to face and are only then fully conformed into the likeness of Christ. So how do we know? We know that we have been healed by Christ's wounds, his suffering and death, for or because you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We know that Christ has indeed saved or healed us from our sin if we have indeed returned to Christ as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The word returned can also be translated as turned. And it's the same word used in other places in the New Testament to refer to being converted, to becoming a Christ follower. That means that we have turned away from sin, that's repentance, and we have turned towards Christ, that's faith. Repentance of sin and faith in Christ are two sides of the same coin, encompassed in that word returned or turned. And shepherd and overseer are two terms or functions that refer to the same office of authority. In this case, Jesus is the chief shepherd and overseer over his sheep. He has the position of the highest authority over our lives. So we can have confidence in our salvation from sin if we are no longer straying sheep, each going our own way apart from God. But we have repented or turned away from our life of straying and we have believed in or turned towards Christ 
and have received him as the highest authority in our lives. You know, though Jesus is rightly called Lord and King, he also comes to us as shepherd. You know, Lord and King describe more majestic authority, but shepherd describes much more humble authority. The late James Montgomery Boyce, an American pastor and theologian, provides some helpful background here. He writes this, In Israel, as in other ancient societies, a shepherd's work was considered the lowest of all works. If a family needed a shepherd, it was always the youngest son, like David, who got this unpleasant assignment. Shepherds had to live with the sheep 24 hours a day, and the task of caring for them was unending. Day and night, summer and winter, in fair weather and foul, they labored to nourish, guide, and protect the sheep. Left to themselves, sheep lack everything. They are the most helpless animals. Left to ourselves as straying sheep, we lack everything. But when we turn to Christ as the shepherd and overseer of our souls by repenting of our sin and believing in Him, He will never cease to care for us. He is always with us to the end of the age. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Here's life application number two. Turn or return to Christ alone as your saving shepherd and overseer. Turn or return to Christ alone as your saving shepherd and overseer. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm glad that you're here. And as you hear God's word preached, I urge you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ alone as your saving shepherd and overseer. You know, there is a day of judgment coming where every one of us will stand before our holy creator and give an account for our lives. And none of us will be able to stand. There is none that is righteous before him. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The day of judgment is coming, but now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. So repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and commit to follow Him in His suffering, death, and resurrection for the rest of your life. You will never regret following this saving shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, I still urge you to repent of your sin and return to Christ alone as your saving shepherd and overseer. Trust that Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. Trust that he endured the worst unjust and unimaginable suffering for your sake. And so he is able to sympathize with you in your own suffering. Trust that left to yourself, you lack everything. And that when you come to Jesus as your chief shepherd, you lack no good thing. In the midst of your suffering, trust that Jesus is personally leading you through the valley of the shadow of death and that he himself has endured it before and he's going to lead you all the way through to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Whoever you are and whatever you're going through, Christ calls out to you, stop straying. And turn or return to me as the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, Jesus is seeking you and pursuing you as a good shepherd. And he is waiting to carry you on his shoulders back home to his flock. That's why he went to the cross for us. Because Jesus is our saving shepherd. You know, as we close, 
I want to turn our attention to what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Christ. And as soon as you hear it, you'll know that Peter undoubtedly had this passage in mind. And on this side of the cross, we know that God spoke of Jesus as a suffering servant to come for his people. So Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is our suffering example. Jesus is our saving shepherd. And once again, the one thing for today is follow Jesus in his suffering. Follow Jesus in his suffering. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.